Holiday House Books for Young Readers, Speech Tree Publishing Company, and Pixel and Ink present Kendall Culper, author of Murder for the Modern Girl, in conversation with Holiday House Senior Editor Sally Morgridge. This is Sally Morgridge, Senior Editor at Holiday House Publishing. I'd like you to imagine a ravishing young mind reader stalking the streets at night, prowling for men to murder. Or a soft-spoken genius toiling away in the city morgue, desperate to unearth the science behind his gift for shape-shifting. It's a match made in 1928 Chicago, where gangsters run city hall, jazz fills the air, and every good girl's purse conceals a flask. This is the exciting premise of our new novel by Kendall Culper. Kendall writes historical fantasy for young adult readers and has published two novels, Salt and Storm and Drift and Dagger. Murder for the Modern Girl is her first book with Holiday House. She graduated from Harvard University with an honors degree in history and literature and lives with her husband, two daughters, and a dog named Abby in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today for the guest book podcast, Kendall joins me to discuss world building, researching and writing for young adults, and more. Kendall, welcome to the guest book. Thank you so much for having me. So your your book is told from two different perspectives. Um, and despite being narrated from those two points of view, I feel like the reader never forgets who is telling the story. They have such distinct fly off the page voices that bring their stories to life. Now I know a bit about what went into that because it was definitely something we worked on, but how hard would you say it was to write from these different perspectives? Definitely in the beginning when the characters are still in the process of being creative, it's really tricky to find their voices and find what makes them really distinct It's also really tricky just from a practical standpoint. I think what people sometimes don't realize about dual narrators is essentially you're telling two stories in half the amount of time. And so um, I always find when I'm starting a book with dual narrators that I'll get what feels like to me only a quarter of the way through the story and I'm already at half of my goal word count. So to figure out a way to cut those (laughs) narrative arcs down (laughs) and still have them feel complete is a challenge that I, I, it always surprises me. You think I would figure it out at this point, but it always surprises me. And I think it's something that people don't, don't really um, think about when they, when they sit down to pick up a book like this, but definitely creating voices is something that I find so rewarding and enriching and it really helps me focus in on what these characters are all about. And, you know, it's more than just Ruby speaks in slang. My flapper character speaks in slang and my other character throws in scientific jargon. It's much more about figuring, seeing how they even look at the world. And Ruby is a character who's really open and she's really sure of herself and that confidence really influences how she meets people and how she finds herself in new environments. Whereas my other character, who I guess we're going to call Guy, I don't know (laughs) for now. No spoilers. um, Yeah. No spoilers. Uh, You do find very early on that Guy is not his real name, but we will stick with Guy for now. But I, 
he has a really different perspective. He's much more of a, a lonely person. He finds it really difficult to connect with people. He's really timid in, in new situations, but he's able to tap into the things that really fire him up to get him excited and to get him more comfortable. So because he's a scientist, if there's a scientific question or aspect that really ignites something in him and allows him to lose himself in the moment. And those are little character things that like you, you sort of alluded to really sometimes take a lot of drafts, a lot of edits, a lot of refining, but, you know, I always like a a dual narrator, a multi-narrator book where you can pick it up and turn randomly to a page and know exactly who is speaking. And, you know, hopefully that, that is the effect that this book has. I think you nailed it. Um, so you're, you're talking about how different the two characters are, Ruby and Guy. Uh, and the, yeah, Ruby has this very confident, sharp exterior. Uh, so it takes the love story, the romance, forever to actually happen. Um, it, it really takes a long time for them to finally, finally open up and share what's the skeletons in each of their closets. Um, But once they do, their relationship has a very um, equal, balanced nature. And it feels like their love story is really rooted in kindness and mutual admiration. Um, It's just, it's certainly one of my favorite parts of the book. And I, I wondered if you set out to write a romance when you first had the idea for the book or you know there's so many different genres which I want to ask you about your inspiration for <laughs> but um like where did romance fit into the initial idea well romance I think is so fun to write I think it's it's such a classically YA topic and to me it kind of feels like a no-brainer in some ways. I think you can access so much story and character and development through romance. And I love writing slow burn romances because I think to me, that's, it, it just feels more natural. I think the kind of instant love when you meet somebody and you're immediately attracted to them and your next page, you're telling how much you love them is kind of not really how I've experienced love. (laughs) I think most people have. And I think especially for a teenager, especially for kind of a first big love, it's nice when it's a bit of a slow burn. And the thing that I really wanted about the romance between the two of them is that they are able to see each other for the people that they really truly are, which is something that they're not even really able to see about themselves. And I think that that is something that is so exciting about love when, you know, you meet somebody and they, they're able to say to you, this is the person that I see. And you're kind of like, wow, that person sounds really amazing. I never even knew that I had those qualities. And that is something that I think can only come from spending a lot of time with another person and seeing them in a lot of different scenarios. And, uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's also just really nice. (laughs) I mean, I think when I wrote this book or when I set out to write this book, it was 2016. There was a lot of really dark stuff in the news. And I found myself gravitating towards books that were really light and not 
not frivolous light, but light that books that kind of had a, a lightness to them. And I really love books that just really sweep you away and make you feel happy things. And I think I was looking for that kind of book. And that was, you know, people always say you want to write the book that you want to read. And certainly that was what I was looking for, that kind of sweet, light romance that still feels real. It's not frivolous. It's not frothy. It's just, you know, two people kind of magically finding each other at just the right moment. Well, I just want to call out the book list review that um, said Murder for the Modern Girl is an effervescent champagne cocktail of a novel that packs a delightful punch, which is basically what you just described, you know, something that's <laughs> that that it's fizzy, it makes you feel good, but it also packs a punch. It's not just just light reading. Um, so I think at least the book list reviewer feels you really um, achieved that goal. That's <laughs> um, <always> nice. <laughs> yes, isn't it? So beyond romance, the book also has elements of fantasy, crime, and real world history. How did you come up with the uh, with the idea for a book that encompasses so many different um, genres? It's it's it really is a genre bender. Uh, so what was the inspiration beyond the romance? It definitely was not something that I set out to do on purpose. I just really love writing about history. I think it's so interesting. I think it's kind of history is one of those things where, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same, basically. And I just love getting to explore issues through this other world. And I also really love fantasy. I think throwing in fantasy adds another element that allows you to look at different issues from a different perspective. And specifically how I came to this idea is I had read this really excellent nonfiction uh, history of uh, the creation of forensic science, which took place during prohibition in New York City. And it was this time when scientists were finally realizing that they had the means to detect when people were being basically poisoned, murdered on purpose. And what was so fascinating about this book is you could see cases where criminals and scientists were basically racing each other to come up with, you know, means to kill people or means to detect how those people were killed. And I thought that that was just such a totally fascinating, unique way to look at the 1920s. And it made me think, well, if I wanted to create a character in the 1920s who was in a similar situation, who was murdering people and was finding themselves suddenly in the spotlight of these brand new forensic scientists that had never really existed a generation before, what kind of story would that be? Who would this person be? And, you know, the, the easy way to go is to make that person the villain, but I thought it was more interesting to make her the hero and especially a young girl, the last person that you would ever think to be doing this. So that led me to ask more questions. Well, if she's going to be killing people, she has to have a good reason. So what is a good reason? She must feel really justified. And if she's really justified in it, it has to be ironclad. She has to have no doubts at all. So how could I make it so she has no doubts at all? What if she's a mind reader and she's reading all these horrible thoughts in people's heads. 
And she knows that if she tries to bring it to the police or the law, nothing is going to happen. And why would she know those things? Well, maybe her father is the Cooks County state attorney and she understands that the system exists, but it is desperately flawed. And just asking all those questions made me, you know, come up with a new answer, which just made me ask more questions. So it was, I, I never would have thought I'd be writing a book about 1920 Chicago with a mind reading flapper and getting into crazy, corrupt Chicago politics. But it was really just, you know, asking a question, finding the answer. That answer led to another question. I had to find another answer. And that is how the book came to be. <laughs> so Ruby is a serial killer. I won't, I won't <laughs> beat her up. Ruby has conducted a string of murders before the book opens, um, right on the very first page. She's, she's preparing for one. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's like a Dexter, you know, good hearted serial killer situation. <laughs> um, and she's targeting men who take advantage of defenseless women. So there's this very empowering element to her vigilante justice system. Um, and you mentioned you started thinking about the book in 2016 and obviously the last six years, uh, there's been a lot of cultural discussion of misogyny and violence against women. And what sort of message did you want to get across to young people who are reading the book? But also, I, we hope that young people have already internalized the messages um, and, and the conversations that we've been having over the last six years. We really hope that um, there's going to be a better future thanks to this generation. But you know, how are you targeting those readers with this unorthodox system of murders? Yeah, that's a really good question. So obviously I will say murder is not the answer. <laughs> it's not, it's not, that's not what the book is about. Do um, not try this at home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless I guess you are a mind reader, in which case maybe, you know, more than I do, but um, yeah. So uh, for sure, those things were, were on my mind when I was writing the book and it was really written in a moment where I felt very powerless and not really sure what to do with a lot of these feelings. And I think the lesson that, uh, that Ruby learns is also really the lesson that I want readers to come away with and not to spoil the ending, but she really feels like she is working in a system where she is necessary because nobody is listening. And what she comes to learn is that people are listening. People are willing to help. There is change that is possible. And change is only possible when you allow yourself to be open to the possibility of, of hope. And that was another reason why, you know, this book is called murder for the modern girl. It's obviously about a lot of really dark subjects, but when you read it, I want it to feel really fun. And that was on purpose because I think that with a world that we live in with so many problems, it is so easy to feel cynical and so easy to feel like you can't do anything. These problems are insurmountable. 
But what I've seen time and time again, and it's even the dedication of the book is uh, stick together, you're stronger as a group. And that is something that really has saved me for the past six years. It's something that I think about all the time. And it's something that I want readers to come away with when they put, put this book down, which is that you find your strength to keep going in other people. And if something affects one person, it affects every person. And we can only challenge these things by working together and by finding the things that bring us happiness and joy and happiness and joy are so important. You know, anger is a, is a great fuel, but I think hope for a better tomorrow is personally to me much more potent. And, you know, when I think about the future that I want my kids to have, it's, you know, like I said, anger will will get you so far, but it's just imagining them living the lives that I want them to have that pushes me to, to keep fighting for them and to keep supporting people that are having similar fights. And so that is the, like I said, that is the message that, or that is the the lesson that Ruby sort of slowly comes to. And for sure, that is what I want readers to come away with. Yeah. I love, I love that. Um, I, I, I think you really, well, a book, uh, uh, not a book, but a movie I like to compare this to and describing it in an elevator pitch is promising young woman. Um, and I don't want to give away the end of the movie, but I think the end of this book has so much more hope to it. Um, promising young woman. I loved the movie, but the ending felt like real heartbreak. Um, and I think giving Ruby, well, again, no spoilers, but you know, <laughs> it, it's not a, tra- it's not a tragic ending. I'll put it that I way. I tell everybody, I always say it is, I don't, I'm happy to spoil it. When you finish this book, I want you to feel like a rocket of joy has just yes. been set Oof. off. That's a good way of putting it. So it, you know, it's not a tragic ending. And I think, um, that's so important. So, uh, you know, I, I like when I was describing it to the the sales reps, um, I said something like promising young woman meets six feet under because you have, you know, uh, Ruby being a vigilante and then guy working, you know, <laughs> not in a funeral home, but with corpses, but it's just so much more than that. And I think a lot of that comes from the hopeful ending and, um, how inspiring Ruby's courage is, um, Now, I want to talk a little bit about our next book together, which is going to be announced soon. Um, And there's, uh, so it's set in the same universe as this. It's it's a standalone and readers don't need to have read Murder for the Modern Girl to read it. Um, But I think you, again, touch on something timely because it takes place in Hollywood and it's about the mistreatment of young actresses in Hollywood but it takes place in the 1930s. So here we are in 2022 and um, the last, it was particularly since 2018, we, the cultural conversation specifically around Hollywood has, has changed so much and we're just paying more attention, keeping bad behavior and really bad behavior in check in a way that we haven't always as a society and certainly a society that likes to glamorize Hollywood and, and acting. Um, 
So I, I don't know. I think you're like on to something in the way you pick <laughs> these, these historical topics, but managed to make them feel really relevant. And so I wanted to hear more, you know, you, you read the forensic science book and that's kind of what inspired you with Murder for the Modern Girl. What was your touchstone that in, inspired book two, which I guess I won't name yet, but it will be announced shortly. Yes. You know, I'm actually even trying to remember how I came up with the idea. I actually don't even really remember. <laughs> I think, um, I think I honestly, so, uh, the, the book has a character who is mentioned in murder for the modern girl, but she is young. So, um, I was toying with the idea of writing a book that could be sort of a, a companion to murder for the modern girl. Cause I, I just loved that universe so much. And I picked this young girl and to, to age her up properly to the age that I wanted her to, to be, which was 18. It had to be 1934. So I think I was just thinking what is interesting in 1934 that I could really sink my teeth into. And Hollywood is just such a great, topic. It's just, you know, there is no end to fascinating, fascinating stories about Hollywood. And the challenge for this book is that as soon as you look for stories about Hollywood, it is so depressing, (laughs) so fast. There is just not a single star that emerged from that time period unscathed. And those were the, the successful ones you know, not to mention the, the hundreds or thousands of people that tried and failed. So I really, really struggled writing this book and coming up with a story that just was not full of bleakness and, and depression, especially like you said, because I knew that I wanted this book to be about the exploitation of specifically young women by the Hollywood system, which certainly was a major part of Hollywood in the 1930s and is still a part of Hollywood in a lot of creative places these days. So with Murder for the Modern Girl, there was a bit of a a historical reality of, um, you know, in, in, in the late 1920s, a lot of social programs started up to help vulnerable populations. And so I was able to have a historical uh, example to say like, well, you know, I can end it on a happy note because in, in real life, these places really did exist. But in Hollywood, there was nothing like that. And in fact, we're still dealing with those issues. So how do I write a story when I want to leave readers with hope when we are still back in the exact same situation that these characters found them in? So that was the, that was the major challenge. And what it really did now that I'm almost done with another draft and, and can kind of see the story a lot more clearly, it really challenged me to create a character that could live up to all that darkness and could take all that darkness and carry it on and not let it affect her. And something that just in the last you know year or two, I have really been holding in my head and in my heart as something to kind of help me get through some really 
dark days that we've all been experiencing is joy is an act of resistance. And what I love about this character is she really has an inner core of joy that she does not allow to be shaken or destroyed. And to have a character like that, even just to be able to write her has certainly helped me have a new perspective on life because she realizes that yes, there are dark things that are going, going on in the world. And there are people that she wants to help that she's not able to help, but she knows that those people don't want her living under a rock. And she knows that the people that are harming vulnerable populations, vulnerable people, vulnerable actresses, they want this character to be miserable. And her joy is a way to say, I'm here and I'm human and I'm alive and you can't break me. And that was something that once I really found that character and found that aspect of her, the rest of the story felt so much easier because I was able to get into that headspace and to say, okay, I'm in this world and I want to change things. And I know I'm not going to be able to change things, but I'm going to not let it change me. And it just, you know, it's, it's a book that started out really, really difficult to write. And now I just, I just absolutely love it. And I, you know, personally, again, it's, it's was writing the book that I felt like I really needed. And I definitely have gone through challenging times in the last couple of years as everybody on the planet has. And, uh, having a character that's able to access her joy so readily and so easily has really been just helpful for me as a human being. I love hearing about that. And I especially love hearing about that today. I think it's, um, Oh, it's been a hard week uh, in this country. And I think the idea of joy as an act of resistance and, and people, especially kids, bring so much joy and so naturally feel joy in a way that gets harder and harder to the older you get, I'm learning. Um, so I just... I want to end on a happy note, on a joyful <laughs> note, because I think what you're doing with with that character who shall remain nameless with her joy makes the book even more powerful. So I guess I want to ask Kendall, what are three things that bring you joy on a daily basis? It can be small things like you know, I actually like seeing the plant in the background of my, <laughs> my Zoom background. It brings me joy on work calls. But what are three things that bring you joy? Uh, definitely my family. My, my kids are just hilarious and wild and they just make me laugh every single day. And I will include my dog in my kids because she also is hilarious in a very different way. She's a very dry sense of humor, I would say for a dog. (laughs) Um, And they just, you know, having something to take care of also is just a, a wonderful way to kind of get out of my head and, and put aside my own problems. Um, and also I, I love to garden today, you know, again, was sort of a rough day for everybody. And 
my little one is home from preschool. Her preschool is closed for a COVID outbreak. (laughs) So she's home all week. She is fine. Thank goodness. Um, But, you know, I wasn't getting any work done. And I thought, you know what? My little one is home. We're going to go to the garden store. We're going to buy lots of plants. And she's the best person to shop with because whenever I say, do you think we should get the white one or the pink one? She always goes, why not both? I think, all right, great. She said it. (laughs) So, you know, we always just come home with, with loads of plants and it's just, I love going out there with her. I love growing things. Again, it's kind of something that I can take care of and just makes me so happy. And, uh, my third thing I'll say the ukulele, I play the ukulele so terribly Oh my gosh. I doubt that. No, it's real bad. It's real bad. But you know what? I don't care. I, I will say, you know, I am very good at a lot of things that I try. Insanely good at embroidery. And And I am so bad at the ukulele. I've been playing now for seven years. I still have to like have all the notes and like all like the, the, where to put my hands on the strings but I don't care. I, it's something that I only do for me. I would never like put myself on YouTube or whatever, like app is nowadays. (laughs) Never, never. I sound terrible. Even sometimes my neighbors will say like, was that you playing the ukulele? And I'm like, no, it wasn't me, but it's just, I think there's a lot of pressure to find hobbies that you can sort of like I guess maybe monetize is not the right word, but can sort of bring you attention online or something like that. Or sometimes people pick up hobbies and there's such a pressure to be good at something. The ukulele is something that I know I'm terrible at (laughs) and it just makes me so happy. I play like depressing songs from the nineties on my little plinky ukulele. My husband is always like, what are you playing? But it's, it's, it's just for me. And it just makes me happy. I think we all need that. I'm going to need to find a, a hobby I can be bad at. <laughs> um, Clearly it's great. <laughs> yeah, I do. My daughter has one. So I could just steal her. Uh, so Kendall, before we end, how would you like to sign the guest book? I think I have to go with my dedication, which is stick together. You are stronger as a group. It is so true. Find your people help each other, solve each other's problems. That is the way to succeed. Agreed. Kendall, thank you so much for joining me today on the guest book podcast. I'm looking forward to the book being out and uh, seeing more from you in the coming months. Thank you so much.